Well, welcome to our gathering, saints. Welcome uh, this Sunday morning uh, to Faith Bible Church Menifee. And as you know, we have been teaching through the Beatitudes. And I started back in December. And um, I'm not up every Sunday, as you also know. And this morning, we will continue our journey through the Beatitudes. Uh, However, I've enjoyed this wonderful opportunity, and I trust that you, as well as I, have been convicted, have been encouraged, you've been challenged and strengthened at the same time. Amen? Amen. I know I have. So as we begin to look at the the following beatitude, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, that's where we will focus our attention this morning. I have a question for us as a means of introduction. Have you ever, listen carefully, have you ever stood in front of a carnival mirror? Have you ever stood in front of a carnival mirror? These are mirrors that have a curvature to them, and they uh, usually reflect a distorted image. And depending on the angle, depending on the lighting, you will either appear to be a little bit taller, a little bit shorter, uh, a bit skinnier, or maybe even wider. Have you ever stood before these mirrors? Anyone? Show of hands. Now, though, though some of us might like the idea of looking a little taller, I know I do, maybe a little bit skinnier or whatever your, um, whatever the case may be, that reflection is not who we truly are. And the reason why I say this is because by his grace, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has been holding up a mirror to us, but not a mirror that will distort or bend our image, but he's been holding the mirror of his perfect law. And this morning, uh, or rather this mirror, never distorts who we really are. And in doing so, as Christ holds up the mirror of his law and of his word, we get to see the reflection, we get to see the disposition, we get to see the heart attitude Uh, Our heart attitude in relationship to God, in relationship to sin, in relationship to others. Now, John Calvin wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion the following. Listen carefully. Quote, we discover in God's law a picture of God's image to which we are being progressively conformed. End quote. So my prayer is that by the end of the Beatitudes, we will clearly see the reflection of a genuine kingdom citizen, that we would all as a church here in Menifee would understand that kingdom citizens are different men and women. Can I hear an amen to that truth? Kingdom citizens are not men and women that follow tradition. They don't follow culture. They don't follow religion. They don't follow the world, but rather they are following the Lord Jesus Christ. Kingdom citizens are men and women who are not trying their way. They're not trying to make their way into God's kingdom by their own effort, by their own works. They are not busy doing things to look the part, uh, look the part, but they are humble men and women that are battling it out in the sanctification process. They are believers who hope in Christ's finished work on the cross on their behalf <clears throat> and whose life direction is consistent with what we know to be true in Scripture and specifically in the Beatitudes. So in order to fully understand the Beatitudes, We have to look at the previous ones to see the big picture. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I believe it's there before you on your handout. And as we're looking at the uh, verses 1 through 7, allow me to remind you that the Beatitudes are not a checklist. 
The Beatitudes are not a grocery list or a, a to-do list of things that one ought to perform in order to become a kingdom citizen. But rather, it gives us the identity. It gives us the character. It gives us the profile, the internal and external makeup, the internal and external disposition, disposition of a kingdom citizen. Again, these kingdom citizens are men and women of every tribe and every tongue that have been scattered throughout history who truly enjoy the blessing of belonging to Christ. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 5, before we begin reading our passage, allow me to summarize what we've covered thus far. This sermon was given by Jesus Christ. It was not his first sermon, but it is a sermon that is contained for us in its entirety. And it was recorded by an eyewitness of this sermon by a tax collector, a despised public enemy of the nation of Israel. And his name is Matthew. He was hated by the Jews of his day because he was collecting tax, taxes for Rome and adding a little bit, a little fees here and there to make a living. And at the beginning of his sermon, we'll find that Christ will describe for us the way of blessedness. <clears throat> and if you have the text right before you, in the Greek manuscript or in the Greek text, we have the Greek word, and I've said it time and time again, and I'll repeat it so it becomes ever so familiar in our thoughts. Christ uses the Greek word makarios, which means happy, fortunate. Oh, the many blessings. Please write these down if you're taking notes. Oh, to be envied, supremely blessed. So as we read these verses, I want you to notice the repetition of the word makarios or the word blessed. And Jesus, and, and Matthew rather, writes for us, starting in verse 1, Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, speaking of Christ, his disciples came to him. And as I add a little bit, remember, Matthew is one of the disciples that came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So please allow me to expand and quickly summarize what Christ has told us and what we've covered thus far as we sit around the Beatitudes. Christ has told us that happy are the spiritual beggars. Happy are the spiritual, spiritual indigent one. The spiritually bankrupt. And I know you're sitting there asking, well, who are they? What do they look like? And I'm glad you're asking these questions this morning. Who are they? How could we recognize them? These are men and women who completely acknowledge and recognize their, totally, their total inability to save themselves. Their total inability, they're effortless, they're powerless to try to save themselves. And it is precisely this person who is happy because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them and it is not based on their own merit, it's not based on their own performance. Christ has told us that happy are those who mourn over personal sin. Happy are those who, uh, who mourn over their sin against a thrice holy God. And I would say that it is only kingdom citizens who possess sorrow of the heart. Now, this sorrow is different from worldly sorrow or even sorrow that hypocrites possess. You see, the hypocrite will put on a fake smile. The hypocrite will shed many tears. The, uh, the hypocrite will even say the right things but feel absolutely not, nothing in their heart. Why? Because the heart is so far and so removed from being genuine. And it is the hypocrite who, according to Christ in this very sermon later on, Christ says that it is a hypocrite who disfigures his face while they fast and they prayed ever so loudly. 
Now, as we look at the entirety of Scripture, as believers, we find that Scripture teaches that it doesn't end with just having sorrow over sin or feeling guilt over sin. But we as Christians, and I'll say that again, but we as Christians, in case you missed it, you and I as genuine Christians have to put sin to death continually. Can I hear an amen to that truth? We have to put sin to death continually. And this is the same encouragement that we find throughout the centuries. Specifically, we find it in the great Puritan writer, John Owens, who reminds us in his book, The Mortification of Sin. And he says the following, listen carefully, quote, Indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. Therefore, there is always a need for it to be mortified, end quote. What great insight. Transitioning or going back, focusing back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, happy are the weak. Please follow along with me. Happy are the, uh, are the meek. Happy are the gentle. Happy are the humble, the mild, because they shall inherit the earth. They will take possession of the earth. But notice that sinful, unregenerate, proud, arrogant, selfish men are on a quest to conquer lands, utilizing force. They are quick to promote themselves. They fight for their desires. They fight for their demands. They go in yielding swords. They walk in uh, uh, yielding weapons of mass destruction and riding in military tanks to take possession of the land. However, Christ says that the meek, the gentle, will take possession of the land. They will inherit the land. That is quite a contrast. Christ has told us also that happy are those who desire righteousness, who desire godliness, who desire to desire holiness, and they desire it in such a degree like you and I desire food and water. These men and women recognize their, their, their need of righteousness, something they have, do, do not have on their own, and they know that it is only God who will be able to satisfy. Righteousness will, will never disappoint Again, it is only kingdom citizen who will desire righteousness. Even when righteousness is unpopular, when it's out of fashion, when it's out of step with society or with culture, even when righteousness leads to persecution, suffering, and even vilification. Again, on a side note, as we expand a little more on that truth, it is the unregenerate, the unregenerated heart that chases after sin. Chases after false idols. Chases after the flesh. And these things will always disappoint. They will always fall short. They will never truly sustain. It will never endure. But it is only kingdom citizens that will pursue righteousness for it will satisfy. Allow me to give you an illustration that I think will solidify this truth in our hearts and in our minds. You see, I find that Oftentimes when I date my wife and I take her to a restaurant to enjoy a meal together, I find this to be true more often than not. When I do my research and I know what she's craving and she loves flavors and I'm just a simple guy, I'm good with a little bit of bread and water. But she likes the finer things in life. And when she enjoys a meal, I always see this big smile on her face. She, sometimes she even glows. And she says the following. I will never eat again. <laughs> I will never eat again, my, my bride tells me. And you know what? Because I am such a humble, proud, or proud, humble, which one is it? Because I'm a humble man. I believe her. I believe her. You know why? Because love believes all things. Love endures all things. Love hopes all things. However, I find this to be true. 
that come morning, she has a different conviction. Why is that? Because food will never permanently satisfy saints. Food will never permanently satisfy. And in the same way, sin will never permanently satisfy. Whatever your sin of choice may be, may it be pleasure, comfort, alcohol, drugs, sex, money, possessions, it will never permanently satisfy your soul. They will only leave you wanting more come morning. But according to Jesus Christ and his faithful statement, righteousness will truly satisfy. And saints, now we've arrived at the verse that we're going to be looking in, uh, we're going to be focusing this morning. And it's Matthew 5, verse 7. Please follow along with me and I will read it out loud. Please follow along. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why don't you read it out loud with me? Ready? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach the text and as we approach this particular beatitude, I pray that your spirit would illumine, enlighten, that we will be convicted, that we will be strengthened, that we will put our trust in your finished work on the cross, that we will look at your faithful character, how you are a merciful God, and that we in return would be merciful people. This I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read our verse again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I trust that you've been following along with my review and as I paraphrase, but if we were to dial it in a bit closer, bring in that magnify glass or magnifying glass before this text, I know you've noticed this, and if not, allow me to suggest this to you, that the Beatitudes seem to display a definite progression, a logical sequence suggesting to us that they're building upon the previous one. Keep in mind that as we read verse 7, we have now entered into uncharted territory. For this is a turning point in the Beatitude. You see in verses 3 to 6, Christ has described for us how a Christian looks like, how they behave. But now he'll start describing for us the consequences of being his the consequences or the duty of being a kingdom citizen. He will describe what a Christian does. Again, he will describe our duty, our behavior, which is a result of truly belonging to him. Now, this is not a foreign idea because Peter wrote to the saints who were relocated in Asia Minor. They were scattered abroad in an undesirable place. Listen to the following. The saints... In Peter's day, they were a people group who had nothing in their possession. They had been relocated. They had no power. They had no influence. They had no status. They had no wealth. They had no position in government. And listen to this one, since this seems to be a buzzword in our culture. They had absolutely no equity. But please notice that Peter describes this blessed bunch of men and women under divine inspiration, and this is how he describes them. First Peter 2, it's before you in your outline, starting in verse 9. But you, speaking of that vulnerable group of people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into 
Here's a marvelous light. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see it, saints? This vulnerable bunch of men and women had been scattered uh, abroad in Asia Minor, were blessed, they were happy, they were fortunate, they were makarios, they were worthy of all envy because they had received mercy. Amen? You and I have received mercy as well. Now, I want you to consider, because this is a turning point in the Beatitudes, we need to consider that the Christian walk focuses more on being rather than on doing. I'll say that again. Focuses more on being rather than on doing. Religion, fo- religion focuses on, on the act of doing, but the Christian walk focuses more on who we are, our attitude over our actions. But I know that as soon as I say that, my heart in particular is tempted to believe the lie, to believe the lie that I don't have to worry about my actions, that I could disregard my behavior, that I will downplay my behavior or lack thereof and only focus on the attitude of my heart, faith over actions, attitude over duty. However, this is a stretch of the truth and far from the truth. And I would even call this, this is a little bit of orthodoxy. I'm having trouble pronouncing this word. Orthodoxy and lawlessness. There's many men and women who are at peace knowing the truth of the gospel. Listen carefully. They're at peace knowing the truth of the gospel, yet living life without that truth affecting their actions. Many describe, uh, deceive themselves by saying the following, I'm at peace with it. I feel fine. Or how about this one? I've prayed about it. But that might not always be a good gauge because you know what, saints? If your heart's anything like mine, which it is, your heart is deceitful above all. And that's not me saying it. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17. And I might even add that because of sin, our prayers oftentimes are selfish. They're self-serving and therefore gone unanswered. You see, saints, actions don't save us. I'll say that again. Our actions won't save us. But because we are saved, saved, we do actions that are consistent with salvation. I'm not talking about works. I'm not talking about just duty and, and performance or perfection. But I'm talking about a desire that's coming from the heart, a willingness to obey our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is the charge, the warning that John the Baptist was giving the religious elite of his day, which are the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, they were the meticulous ones. They kept the law. They were the religious elite. They were good on the outside, but they were, uh, they were worthy of all emulation. But Christ even says in this specific sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you by no means will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what was wrong with the religious elite of the day? What was wrong with, uh, I don't like this word, but I'll use this as I've been hearing it. What was wrong with the professional Christian, if you would call it that? You see, it was all flowing from a self-righteous attitude. It was all human effort. The heart was removed. The actions were not consistent with the heart. The actions were good on the outside. The heart was rotten on the inside. And this is not consistent with genuine salvation. And that is why John the Baptist made this proclamation in Matthew 3.8. It's there in your outline. Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. You see, with these words, this charge does not excuse the heart. 
nor does it excuse the action, for both must be true. So theologically, we know the following, that the heart has to be regenerated. The heart has to be renewed. The heart has to be given life first. And this will result in behavior that is consistent with such truth. Again, some might deceive themselves by having sound theology, the right knowledge about Christ, and still live life with actions that are not consistent or that are contrary with the truths of the gospel. So as I summarize this idea, saints, please consider that we have to be a Christian first. I'll say that again. We have to be Christians first before we start behaving like Christians. We have to be kingdom citizens first before we start behaving like a kingdom citizen. Now, this is not a a novel idea. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote many centuries ago the following. You must first be a new man before you can be a merciful man. You cannot help a member of Christ until you yourself are a member of Christ. What great insight. Let's look at verse 7 again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So again, this particular beatitude will focus our faith or who we are or uh, who we've called to be, and it will compare that with our actions. And in this statement, Christ is giving us the Christian duty and the Christian reward. Look at that verse again. Look at verse 7 again. The verb merciful is the Christian duty, and the verb mercy is our Christian reward, and I would say currently, presently, and in the future. I'll read it again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if you're following along, point number one in our outline is happiness is displaying mercy. Happiness is displaying mercy. And now as I say this, I have to ask you, what is mercy? I want you to ask yourself that question. What is mercy? And answer internally, you don't have to answer out loud. What is mercy? Well, allow me to give you some hints. Some have said that mercy is the other side of the coin of grace, and I believe that is extremely helpful. And I believe that mercy is best understood when we, took a, when we take a closer look at grace. You see, as Christians, we're well acquainted with grace. We were just singing about grace this very moment. We name our churches grace. Some even name your daughters grace. We're constantly reminding ourselves of God's grace. And what is God's, and what is grace? The definition of grace is undeserved favor or receiving what you do not deserve. And I believe as we look at grace, we will better understand mercy. So now what is mercy? Remember, mercy is the other side of the coin of grace. So mercy is a withholding of immediate wrath, a withholding of punishment, a withholding of justice, Remember, grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And mercy is, rece- is not receiving what you rightly deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you rightly deserve. So let me give you an example. Grace, what you don't deserve, what I don't deserve is eternal life, forgiveness, and salvation. We don't deserve these. And what is mercy? Mercy is a withholding of what we do deserve. And what is that? Death, wrath separation from God. And it is this particular beatitude that best describes a Christian. There's no way around it, saints. I can't go around this truth. A Christian is merciful. Can I hear an amen? A Christian 
is merciful. After all, Christ is addressing his people. He's addressing uh, his men in particular. He's addressing kingdom citizens. He's addressing Christians. He's addressing you and I by extension. And he's saying that happy are the merciful. And they are happy. They are merciful because they live differently. They respond differently. They do so because they are new creation, saints. Paul writes to the Corinthian assembly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, which I trust is very familiar to all of us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Point number two, if you're still following along, displaying mercy is a godly quality. Displaying mercy is a godly quality. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets remind us of God's character. And what is that? That God is merciful. The prophet Micah, who wrote 700 years before Christ, he wrote the following in Micah 7.18. Who is God like you who pardons wrongdoing and passes over a rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And in the New Testament, Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, Chapter 9, verse 15, for he says to Moses, this is God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Furthermore, Paul writes to the Ephesian assembly and he says the following, but God, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in what? Being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the author of Hebrews remains consistent with the same idea, and he writes in Hebrews 4.16, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So look at it, saints. Mercy is a godly quality. And because mercy is a godly quality, we are the God, we are godliest. We are more like Christ when we extend mercy. And the verses that I just read just a few moments ago, we, we see the following. We see that mercy originates with God. We see that mercy is abundant. We see that mercy pardon, we, pardons. We see that mercy loves. We see that mercy grants access. You see that mercy restores relationships. We find that mercy is not expecting anything in return. Mercy welcomes. Mercy is what you and I, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, is what we have received. So I ask us, Christian, you want to be more like God? Extend mercy. Want to be more like Jesus Christ? Be merciful. Want to know if you belong to him? Examine your heart if you are regularly extending mercy. Now I know that you're diligent. Faith Bible Church Menifee, and you're thinking in the depths of your heart, you're asking this question, and you're probably asking, so how would I know? Allow me to give you some suggestions. It is by His grace that God has given us the one and others. We have great opportunities to extend mercy as you do life with other people. Saints, I was having a conversation with a, a faithful man several weeks ago. And I was presenting the idea, listen carefully, that as a Christian, we need to be regularly sinned against by others. Uh Uh-oh. 
Let me back up and say that again. As Christians, we need to be regularly sinned against by others. Give me a second. Anyone interested in signing up? That is to be sinned against, not to sin against others. It's going to come natural. You know why? When you do life with other people, it's just going to happen organically. You know why? Because our personalities, our pride, our preferences, our pride, our convictions, our pride, our emotions, our pride, our desires, our pride, our wants, our pride, our sinful expectations, our pride, our insensitivity will always get in the way. And it is exactly at that moment where you, a sinner, where me, a sinner, surrounded by other sinners, take a look to your left and to your right. That's when we learn to endure. We learn to forgive. We learn to overlook offenses. We learn to intercede for others. We learn to be meek. And meek is not being weak or staying humble but rather lovingly and graciously speaking the truth in love and with self-control and not reviling in return, but rather we encourage and we seek to repent of all of our pride. Can I hear an amen to that truth? So ask yourself, do I regularly extend mercy? Do I extend mercy? I'm going to ask a few questions and I hope this might help you understand if you do or you don't. On a social level, Ask yourself, how do you respond when other people, men and women, utilize violence to commit horrible, atrocious crimes without mercy? How do you feel when murderers utilize violence and, and, and lawless men just wreck people's lives without mercy? How do you feel? How do you respond? Oftentimes, if you're anything like me, you want them pronounced guilty. We want them to be sentenced possibly to short lives or lives in prison. Some of you might even be reciting the imprecatory prayers. How about this? How do you feel? What is your attitude towards unmerciful leaders, overbearing leaders, unrighteous leaders, ungodly leaders? If you're here in the United States, in particular in California, we want them recalled. Can I hear an amen? We want their positions to be stripped uh, away from them. We want them dethroned. We want them removed from office because they are merciless leaders. How about this? How do you feel or what is your attitude towards merciless, money-hungry, greedy corporations? If you're anything like me, you want them dismantled. You want the government to intervene and restrict them. We want, borrowing biblical language, we want all filthy lucre their possessions to be seized. Why? Because when others are the aggressors, we are prone to forget about mercy and only think about justice. But on a personal level, how do you respond when you aggravate someone, when you sin against someone, when you assault someone, when you victimize someone, when you slander, when you revile, when you malign, when you misrepresent others, how do you respond more often than not? If you're anything like me, you cry out for mercy. You cry out for compassion. And sometimes you expect it from them. However, when we are wronged, I know I am a, on a quest for justice, seeking my pound of flesh. 
An eye for an eye is biblical, isn't it? I'm quick to defend myself. I'm quick to provide an excuse. I'm quick to seek to be vindicated. And if you're like me, you might struggle with withholding wrath, punishment, retaliation. And more often than not, we do not extend mercy. Saints, we're surrounded in a grievous culture as I speak. You see, our current council culture cries out for justice. Yet our culture knows nothing about extending mercy. All, our culture is on a quest with settling all wrongs. Some are given to the full-time duty, full-time work of finding grievances, microaggressions, offending, uh, offenses, finding fault in everything and in everyone. This is promoting this victimhood men mentality in our culture that unrighteously demands justice and seldomly does it ever extend mercy. But it doesn't end there, as you know. Motives are a sign. Every action is scrutinized. Every word is not what it means. Everyone is censored. Everyone is audited. Everyone's on edge. Though this is true of our current culture, saints, it ought not be so amongst kingdom citizens. This morning, in our scripture reading, Daniel reminded us of David's character. Remember that David was considered or was called a man after God's own heart. And as Daniel faithfully gave us the context of life's, uh, of David's life, I want to add a little bit. You see, David was being persecuted by Saul. And I know as we read this, we might, th we might think of a, 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 a momentary struggle. But theologians have agreed that David was under persecution. David was being hunted, if you will, for approximately 15 years. 15 years living in caves. Now, some of you might like that idea, living out in the outdoors. But as normal folk, that's difficult. Living in caves over lies, over lies, over sin, over jealousy. He was persecuted. He was living on the run. He was a shepherd boy turned fugitive. And Saul had all the power of the government, all the power of the military. He had all the resources. He had all the might to pursue David. Saul had wronged David. Saul wanted him dead. Is that evil? Saul was the reason for all of David's calamities. I'll say that again. Saul was the reason for all of David's discomfort, stress, anxiety, depression, Saul was the direct, they're directly responsible for all of these calamities. David's men who had allegiance to David, they were telling David, why don't you just kill him? Take his life. And David responds in mercy. And as we read this morning in 1 Samuel 26, I want you to look at the following, verse 23. It's there before you in your outline. David had every opportunity to order his man, the one that followed him, to utilize Saul's own spear to end his own life, to end Saul's life rather. And David responded as such. 1 Samuel 26, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hands today and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
saints, who is laying asleep before you this very moment? And you have the opportunity to slay in your heart. Ask yourself that question. You see, we, as Christians, we look at Christ's example. We don't follow the world's lead. We don't behave like our culture. But rather, we look to Jesus Christ and see how he responded. In case, in case you haven't given it much thought, allow me to remind you that scripture describes for us that Jesus Christ was slandered. He was cursed. He was maligned. He was misrepresented. He was betrayed by one of his men. He was abandoned by all of his men. He was tried unjustly. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was stripped naked. He was spit upon. He was mistreated. He was crucified. And he was executed without a cause. He truly was innocent. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And in the midst of such offenses, our Lord Jesus Christ extended mercy. Keep in mind that he self-limited his attributes. He had a host of heavenly armies at his disposal to come to his defense, to stop all evil surrounding him, yet he did not. His heart is the following, Luke, 20, Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. You see, in the midst of sin, evil, violence, and injustice, injustice, Christ overlooked their offenses. Christ did not retaliate. He did not hold bitterness in his heart towards those men, towards those Roman soldiers, towards those sinful men. He did not focus on their immediate actions, but rather he prayed for their hearts. He interceded for their behalf or on their behalf. He saw their condition clearly, saints. He saw that they had been deceived, that they were walking in darkness, that they were behaving in ignorance, and he extended mercy. Our brother Stephen did the same in Acts 7. He was ordered by the, by the Supreme Court of his day to not proclaim the risen Christ. And the cancel culture of his day wanted nothing to do with him, and they drove him out of the city to be stoned. And as he's meeting this opposition and this attack on his safety, Stephen looked up to the heavens in Acts 760 and he said the following, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saints David, Christ and Stephen expected nothing other than sin and injuries from lawless, unregenerate men. David, Christ and Stephen had no sinful expectation from the unregenerate. As a matter of fact, they were expecting the worst from the enemies of God. And they treated them with grace. They extended mercy to other sinners. And the question we have before us, how about you? How about me? Christian, are you extending mercy to other sinners? Let me draw the lens of application and focus our thoughts this morning. Husbands. I'm speaking to you directly. When your bride sins against you by disregarding your leadership, by being disrespectful, by refusing to follow your lead, by refusing to submit herself to your leadership, how do you respond? Don't answer out loud. You know how you respond, and I would venture to say she knows how you respond as well. Wives, when your husband sins against you, which I know he does, by being overbearing and sensitive, harsh, critical, intimidating, taking a back seat, not leading, 
or refusing to lead, how do you respond? If you're quick, you flare up, demanding justice, I ask you the following, where is the mercy that you have received? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Take a moment and read that verse on your own. I know that many, as they read this verse and they pull it out of context, it might give us a works-based or a performance-based gospel. But this is far from the truth. Some might even believe that this text is saying, if I want mercy, I have to give mercy. I feel pressure now to give mercy because if I don't give mercy, I won't be given mercy. Well, if we remain consistent with the Sermon on the Mount and the truths we found there, Christ hasn't told you do this to become a kingdom citizen and he's not going to start here. But there are three verses in the New Testament that have a similar pattern, similar, similar phrasing that cause a lot of confusion. And I'm going to mention them ever so quickly this morning, which is this one, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. The other ones contained in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12, and forgave us our debt as we also have, have forgiven our debtors. And lastly, in Matthew 18, verse 35, when Peter is asking about forgiveness and Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father, Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So as I quickly look at these three verses, these passages are focusing on our response when we are sinned against and how we handle the effects or the consequences of sin. These passages are not telling us do this and receive this from God. Although it appears that way in English, that's not what they're telling us. This is not a bartering system. That will go contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a quid pro quo, this for that, performance-driven, but rather this is a grace-driven response. And as we focus on Matthew 18, verse 35, Peter was having a hard time extending forgiveness. And I would venture to say this, so do you and I. And Peter was asking Christ, so how many times should I forgive? And that question in and of itself, you find a legalistic, a formula-driven, a performance-driven attitude. So what is my max? How far should I take this? And Peter thought he was charitable. He thought he was generous. And he said, seven times, right, Christ? Expecting a nod from Christ. However, Christ responded, 70 times seven. And I know some of you are doing the math right now. Stop it. Because that's not what Christ is saying. The, the point Christ is making is that we are to extend forgiveness free, freely, without limits, without restrictions. Christians, we know that it starts with God. He is the initiator. Can I hear him into that truth? We love him because he first loved us. We respond because he sought us. We forgive because he has forgiven us. We extend mercy because we, he has graciously extended mercy to us. Now, if this is true, if you believe these truths, however, you refuse to forgive or you refuse to extend mercy, you are living contrary to what the king requires you to live. You see, when we relish on the truth of forgiveness, mercy and grace that has been extended to us, but we just refuse or, or can't seem to extend mercy to others, we are living in a contradiction. We are not living a life that is consistent with who we are, for we are the forgiven one. We are the mercied, if that's even a word, the mercied ones. 
You see, it's the thrice holy God, the holy, holy, holy God who was gracious enough to forgive us sinful people and he extended mercy with our multiple offenses against him. He is perfect. He is high. He is holy. How much more could we not, sinful men and women, do the same and extend mercy to others? You see, when we refuse to forgive, when we refuse to extend mercy in our, cell, in our hearts, we're elevating ourselves to a position that's much higher than God, much holier than God, and much greater than God. And subtly, what we're saying as we refuse to extend mercy is that the sin that has been committed against us is unpardonable because we are just too great and too valuable. Again, if you and I rejoice over receiving mercy but refuse to extend mercy, this is a contradiction. We need to look at our merciful Father. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Another way of saying this is this. I'm going to add a little word, so bear with me, please. This is what Jesus is telling us. Happy are the citizens, happy are kingdom citizens who have received mercy from God, and it is only they who are able to extend mercy to others. I'll say it again. Happy are kingdom citizens who have received mercy from God, and it is only they who are able to extend mercy to others. Does that describe who you are? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. <clears throat> Point number three, mercy given, mercy extended. Saints, his mercy is free. His mercy is abundant. His mercy flows in abundance. And we know this to be true because Mary the mother of Christ, when she heard the good news that she would be the mother of the Savior of the world, that she would be the human instrument that God would utilize to bring the Savior, she broke out in praise as her heart overflowed with thanksgiving and joy. And this is dubbed the Magnificat. And in this impromptu song of praise, Mary, under divine inspiration, sang the following, Luke 150 is there before you in your notes. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You see, Christian, Mary rejoiced and she uttered the song of praise because she knew the truth of the gospel that God would send his only begotten son to ransom sinners like you and I. You see, it is in the gospel that we find a clear picture of mercy and grace. Now, I know some of you might be asking, so what is the gospel? And I have to be very clear. The gospel is the good news of salvation. It is a mighty work of God. It is a holy trinity at work. You see, God the Father saw our total inability to total, uh, be, due to our total corruption. And the Father devised a plan in eternity past. And he chose us not based on our performance. And he commissioned his son. And God the Son submitted himself to the Father's will. And he entered into humanity taking on human flesh and self-restricting some of his attributes. And he specifically and pur pur purposely died for those whom the Father freely chose. In other words, Christ died for an intended purpose. Furthermore, we see the Holy Spirit that draws us, that draws those whom Christ died effectually, never failing in what he accomplishes, giving life to dead hearts. And there is no human will or volition that will be able to resist his will. Furthermore, in grace, it is the spirit of God that seals us, empowers us, provides spiritual gifts, and brings us kingdom citizen. He brings us Christians, brings us the mercied ones home safely. Therefore, if mercy is found in the gospel, I have to mention this, and I know I'm running out of time, that mercy, if mercy is found in the gospel, saints, listen to the following. 
withholding the gospel is unmerciful. Withholding the gospel is unmerciful. You see, some might be tempted to pull away from the gospel because the gospel tells us that we are inadequate. The, co- the gospel confronts us in our sin. The gospel calls us sinners. The gospel reminds us that we are unable to save ourselves and sinful, unregenerate men do not want to hear that they're unable to save themselves. The gospel clearly reminds us that we are beggars, that we are men and women that are uh, stretching or holding up a weak beggarly hand to the heaven, crying out for mercy. And as preachers, you know this, if you ever preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, or if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you might be tempted to put the gospel aside and try to add other things to be more relevant, to be a little bit more energetic, a little bit more tolerant, non-controversial, not address sin or death or wrath, sanitize the gospel, not speak about blood, separation and wrath, thinking that that will bring people to Christ. But Paul reminds us, And he said in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, focusing on verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you, said Jesus Christ and him crucified. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Saints, we need to recognize that mercy is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, our last observation this morning is that kingdom citizens enjoy, point number four, present mercy and mercy to come. And I know you know this to be true. You and I have been the recipients of mercy. Can I hear an amen? You're not convinced. You're experiencing mercy at this very moment. But not only that, if you look at the language, in the original language, this verb mercy is found in a future passive indicative. And I know you're asking, what does all that mean? Well, future is talking about a time to come. Passive is an action that is being received. An indicative is a statement of fact. So there will come a day when we will get to savor the goodness of his mercy like a flood of many waters. So as I wrap this up, as we look at God's law, as we look into the mirror of God's law, specifically in this beatitude that's speaking of being merciful, I trust that a lot of us remember my little intro about the carnival mirror. As we look at this beatitude of being merciful, a lot of us are going to fall short. Some right now at this very moment are struggling with extending mercies to others. If so, if unable to extend mercy, I want to remind you that he is able. If you're struggling, his grace is sufficient. However, if you're refusing to extend mercy, I beg you to repent and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. Practically, I know in a group this size, some of you are listening to what I'm saying. And a person came to mind. I know this to be true. Saints, I've been wrestling with this passage for over two and a half months. And the Spirit of God is active in the preaching of the Word. And I trust that as we were focusing on mercy, people started coming to mind. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a kingdom citizen, Christ is mercifully waiting for you to repent and respond in obedience if you're refusing to extend mercy. Furthermore, if you're His... Jesus Christ, our King, has said blessed, happy, makarios, highly favored, worthy of all envy, supremely blessed are you. And he's calling you merciful. This is who Christ says you are. This is how he describes your character. You are merciful. So if you could hear past my voice, 
and you could hear Christ's heart. This is what he's telling you. Arise, Christian. Arise, kingdom citizen. Arise, disciple. Go out and extend mercy. Arise, Christian. Respond in grace. Respond in obedience. Go and live out a life that is consistent with who you are, for you are a mercy person. And please remember these very words that were proclaimed in that dusty hill 2,000 years ago. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray.